science fiction has planted the fear that machines will one day replace us. It starts with some of our more labour-intensive jobs being taken over and inevitably slides towards a robotic uprising and the human race enslaved by a dominant species of superintelligent, sentient and virtually indestructible life forms. Artificial intelligence took another leap forward recently with the launch of OpenAI's ChatGPT, a next-generation conversational AI chatbot, sparking debate among writers, journalists and other copy-based content generators that the end, for them at least, may be nigh. But is it? From the University of Aberdeen, I'm Laura Grant. Welcome to Into the Headlines. Episode 2, Writing Robots. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Georgios Leontidis, Reader in Machine Learning and Director of the Interdisciplinary Centre for Data and Artificial Intelligence at the University, and award-winning Scots writer, illustrator, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and honorary teaching fellow at the School of Language, Literature, Music, and Visual Culture, Sheena Blackhall. Welcome both. Nice to be here. Georgios, language models in the form of chatbots aren't new. What have they looked like to date, and what have we used them for? That's a very good question. Yeah, you're perfectly right. We've seen this type of system since a while now. They have been developed and deployed in different settings, which are more of a conversational type of uh, systems where you ask a question and then you get a, a very simple response back. And some of them, they are also able to do some very basic tasks. For instance, you ask what the weather would look like tomorrow and then they can give you a very basic answer. But actually, to go back to the very roots of these systems, we have to, to look back at the, at the 60s. So when we had the first system, it was called a thing, ELISA, which was a very basic first system of, of this type of models. But as you can imagine back then, everything was very simplistic. You were writing something very well structured and then the responses were also very well structured. So it was predefined. Now, 50, 60 odd years later, we've seen a huge development in the systems. And, that has culminated with ChatGPT, uh, which is the most popular system nowadays. And for us, that we are within this kind of field, we've seen also many technological developments that led to having such systems today. I would say there is not one factor that is more important than others, but if I had to choose one, that would be the, the computational resources that we have available nowadays that are that can help us to scale the systems and actually come up with um, uh, systems like ChatGPT, for instance. ChatGPT is being called a step change. Cards on the table, I am not the world's most tech-savvy person. So in fairly simple terms, what does it do and how does it do it? To be able to answer your, your question, uh, I think we have to look at the predecessors of ChatGPT, like the likes of uh, Alexa and Siri that have been with us for for a number of years. And I think now we are familiar with these systems in the sense that we know that we have to ask them something. So we have to structure a sentence and, and ask them something and then we're expecting a response back from them, either a like a verbal response, so they are responding with a, a dialogue with, you know, with, with some sentences also, or with action. So they might be doing something, not necessarily responding um, with, a, with a sentence or a paragraph or whatever that is. But, then we have now the, the ChatGPT, which kind of is such a system, but uh, plus plus, which means that it has managed to be trained with huge amounts of data that are available 
on the internet. Uh, and I think we speak about more than 300 billion words have been used to train ChatGPT, and that amounts to more than 500 gigabytes of, of data. Now, if you think 300 billion words, it's a huge um, uh, amount of words. And then, so this is kind of the, the data that the model has been trained with. And then we have the actual model itself, which for me, that means the architecture of the model. It's like the, the heart of the model, uh, which is just a neural network. Um, it's a specific family of neural networks, which called transformer models. And, and that model itself has billion parameters. And we can think of its parameter as, in a sense, like a neuron, like an artificial neuron. Now, why I mentioned before computational resources, the reason for that is that actually to train such a model, so to train such GPT, we speak about humongous resources. So, and it's very hard for anyone to calculate exactly how much such GPT training has costed, but that is in the low million range. So it could be two, three million dollars that training such a model has costed. And that means that for us, even to be able to retrain this model, develop a competitor of ChatGPT would have entailed huge amount of cost that we, you know, it, it's very hard to do that unless you are you know, a large corporation that has such investment to, to put into these models. So, so I think it's a combination of factors, but the amount of data and the availability of computational resources has actually accelerated research in this area to be able to come up with ChatGPT and also the successors of ChatGPT, which are um, going to come in, in, in a few months' time. Yeah, there's there's a huge amount of buzz around it. I think I read somewhere that 100 million people uh, have used it in the first two months after after its launch. It feels potentially like a, a huge traction of those people have been journalists and people like me who write for a living and want to see how good a job it does in terms of what it's generating. And also a lot of people just having fun. Why is there so much excitement about it? Who's currently using, properly using this technology? And what sort of things is it being used for? If I go back to the first part of your, of your question, I think that one of the, of the main reasons that we've seen a huge amount of users using this type of uh, system is the fact that the company behind developing this model, OpenAI, they decided to make this model available via a very simple browser URL link, you know, through an API, how we call it. So anyone and everyone and, uh, you know, as we speak, go and, and write something and use the, this model, which is, I wouldn't call it unprecedented, but it's, um, it, it's a bold move from OpenAI to kind of uh, open source and release this model so that users can use it. So I think the main reason is, is the easiness behind being able to use this model. Now, going back to other parts of your question, I think that, as I mentioned before also, given the fact that this model has been trained with uh, so much data, uh, inevitably, they will be kind of performing well in some cases and bad in some other cases. That, that's inevitable. And the reason behind that is we have to understand that these models are limited in their capacity to actually reason or you know think like as humans. So they are more like parrots to some extent. So they, they learn something, try to find patterns in the data. And then when you ask them something, they try to see what combination of words and previous information that I've seen in my training data can be used to generate some new uh, sentences that look new, but actually there might be a combination of other data that this model has seen while training. Now, I would say that depending on how much you try to stress test these models, they will exhibit different levels of uh, intelligence, if I can put it like that. 
which means that some concepts might be easier to um, imitate a human response. So then if you interact with the system, you might say, you know, okay, this is a very simplistic response for a simplistic question. So yeah, I cannot be certain whether that is a ChatGPT or, or a human giving me the, the, this response. But the reality is that they, they suffer from a problem called uh, hallucinations. So that means that sometimes they are making up stuff um, and they're providing sources that they don't exist. And, and that's a big problem at the moment. So that's why if you go to the other part of your question about uh, who are the users nowadays, I would say, especially because I'm a frequent Twitter user, I think everyone pretty much is using ChatGPT. from, you know, I've seen cases where people try to see how good in the medical domain the systems could be. You know, you alluded before about journalists using these uh, systems or academics. Anyone has tried to use that, I think, nowadays, like from all different disciplines. But I don't see that process phasing down. So I see that we are just at the very beginning of using these systems. And one of the reasons is that these systems are constantly updated. So it's not that you have a static system where, you know, it's there, uh, you can interact with it, and then you get bored of using it, and then you just forget about that. So these models are constantly updated. So OpenAI, the company that has developed this model, is is releasing new versions of this model, I don't know, every week, every every other week. So you have new versions of that. And that will culminate with a new generation of the system in the coming months. So then we're going to see even better and better models coming out. And then what we thought that wasn't possible before in terms of asking and getting a decent uh, answer back, I think that's going to become better and better. As we as we move towards the future. So I did share a press release with you that we'd asked it to write, and it was a fairly basic press release that, that we tasked it with, but it did an all right job, which was a little bit worrying. <laughs> it had the structure there, it understood kind of how to pitch a top line and how to craft a quote from a, a spokesperson. I'm wondering what you think the influence that chat GPT or whatever comes after it could have on our lives long term, what sort of jobs might actually change as a result of its existence? That's a very good question. But given that I'm sharing the, the stage with someone like Sina, I think I am the last person to comment on anything about linguistics or, or structuring English language. So but I, th- I think thinking mostly from a technology perspective, I think as with any other technology that we've seen over the past uh, few decades, I don't see these systems replacing any kind of uh, profession or jobs. I can see them being a useful auxiliary system that they can provide you some baseline content, and then you have to put your own creativity and more artistic flavors on that. But I don't see that being good enough to say, yeah, just trust them to deliver something without having any, any human input. Also, it could be that this system can be deployed in a way where it can allow you some more space to do something else. You know, all of us, we are, you know, living some very busy lives. We, you know, we could do with some sort of uh, help sometimes. So I see them being as more helping hand in certain cases, but I wouldn't say that it's going to be replacing anyone in, in, the, in the very near future or in the midterm future, but who knows what's going to happen in the long term, right? <laughs> well, Sheena, let me draw you in here. You're a highly accomplished writer. What do you do when you approach a, a piece of writing? Do you write from the heart, from the head, a bit of both? Well, any piece of personal writing is filtered through experience. 
So initially, the language that I write in can vary because I may choose to write in what's known as the mother tongue or Doric, which I was brought up speaking. That's limited in its vocabulary. But leaving that aside, it's generally said that um, if you write in Scots, that's from the heart. And if you write in English, it's cerebral. It's coming from the, you know, the pure intellect. I wouldn't agree with that entirely because um, as you grow older, you acquire more language. P again, people say, well, youngsters don't write much in Scots. Well, but they're only acquiring language. I mean, I'm 76 this year. So I've acquired a lot of language during that time. But I, I wouldn't have been rattling off reams of Doric when I was five. I was hearing a lot of songs, Scots songs, mainly Burns, or traditional Scottish songs when I was, because it was a musical house I grew up in. And uh, they also spoke a lot of rhymes, traditional rhymes. So that came through as well. The other thing that's helped me with writing and thinking about writing is for 20 years, I attended one week a year Buddhist Meditation Center in Balhwida, run by two Buddhist order members, but they were also published poets, and they ran the creative writing side of it. So you had meditation alongside production of work, and I found that extremely useful. Of course, quite a lot of that was in silence, so they would seed the meditation. It was the opposite of being bombarded by stimuli, it's a withdrawal from that. And so instead of going out, you went in and down. So that's a totally different way of looking at writing. I mean, I can't just follow people in the bus. if I not, not, not like a stalker, but if I hear interesting conversations, I've seen me staying in the bus for several stops because I'm desperate to hear the end of the story. So anything can help me write. Quite right. I shared a bit of AI-generated poetry with you. It was quite basic, but what did you make of it? Well, just put it like this. If you get the chance that instant coffee, you know, the cheap instant coffee, just sling in the, the teaspoon and stir it up and it tastes like sludge, fine. But if you go for the, the connoisseur's coffee, you know, you use a cafeteria because it's got to be filtered through experience and human experience, that's when you, you'll get something genuine. An elephant can do painting when it feels like it, but nobody classes that as art, do they? <laughs> now, Sheena, you've travelled extensively uh, over the years in Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, Egypt, China, researching material for your work. How important do you think that personal experience or life experience is when it comes to writing meaningful copy that strikes a chord with people? Well, what I found was interesting from what we heard previously, there was the word heart, family and generation. I wouldn't put the name heart, family and generation anywhere near a machine because it, it doesn't resonate with that. It's interesting that they're doing the same with art now. They are managing to fake pictures from famous artists. A machine produces this now. We can produce sheep. Eventually, I suppose, we'll be able to clone people and we, we mightn't even be necessary at all. We can just stand aside and let the machines take over. 
Do you think people want that though? Do you, do people want machine generated poetry or or music lyrics? No. The reason I travelled extensively was because I'm interested in how other cultures operate. I'm not quite sure how the machine would cope with different cultures. It's a difficult one. I mean, to start with, I, I, I absolutely loathed word processing. I hated it. I said, it'll never catch on. I just like to write by hand. It took me a long, long time to dip my toe in the water. And now, uh, yes, it's very, very useful. And, you know, I wouldn't be without the word processors or and all the rest of it. So I have been dragged, skicking and screaming into the 21st century, but not entirely. Well, it's I guess these things are tools for us, though, aren't they? There is a type of writing called therapeutic writing. It was started around about the 60s by a man called Roberto Asigoli. It's called psychosynthesis. And um, he developed techniques for dealing with grief and all sorts of issues. Uh, the nearest to that is a, a machine-operated thing called the therapist or something. And it, it just repeats what you say. To, so you would say, I'm terribly frightened of trees. I've got a phobia about trees. And it'll go, a phobia about trees. And then there's a pause. And you, this encourages you to speak back as if you were talking to a psychiatrist. I don't know how many people would care for that instead of a real-life person to speak to. But, you know, why not? You could stand at the well at King's and ball down there and get the echo coming back to you and say <laughs> that. But uh, therapeutic writing is something that's quite personal and people use it to deal with inner problems. It's very much an individual thing. So how a machine can cope with an individual, because it's very much, it's very much, uh, you know, you don't expect a Hoover to have guilt or, <laughs> or innocence or joy. It's just a Hoover that sucks up dust. Well, Georgios, you were saying that systems like chat GTP are only as good as the information that's fed to them. Does that mean that they also reflect inaccuracies and bias in terms of the data they're using or have access to? Exactly, definitely. That, that's one of the of the main limitations of such systems uh, at the moment and also one of the, the reasons that they are uh, criticized for. Um, as you can imagine, when they consume all of the data that are available online, the data are not filtered online. So you have any sort of inappropriate content and that these systems might might have been developed with. That means that what the output that this model gives you is actually is inspired by the, the input data. And input data can be biased, can be discriminating, um, exhibit all sorts of um, unfairness and, and um, discrimination as I said before and everything like that. So it is expected that they will um, generate content that will imitate the types of data that they will train with. Having said that, although the complete details are not really disclosed, there has been some sort of curation of the input data that OpenAI used to train this model. And there have been some news that I actually read a couple of days ago about uh, you know, outsourcing the, the job of doing this uh, type of activity. And that meant that some humans had to go through this type of data and they had to curate data. So imagine the cases where people uh, reviewing very toxic content to filter this out. So, and I read some stories, but I don't know if they are true or not, but they were um, describing cases where people might have 
had some sort of mental issues because they had to review this content and this content, you know, it's unfiltered. So they could they had to review anything and everything that is that is out there. So toxicity of, the, of these models is one of the of, of the biggest problems I would say uh, at the moment. And bias, sexism, and all of these um, bad attributes of such models is something that is an ongoing issue. I would say. So how do we address that? These technologies uh, they're a positive step to improving how we do stuff, but we have to be mindful that there are a lot of stuff that has to be improved yet and toxicity and filtering the outputs and making sure that these systems are used appropriately and responsibly. These are the foundational blocks that everything has to be built upon. Otherwise, we will be having systems that are free agents doing whatever they want, providing any sort of output, and everybody can you know, consume this output with all sorts of consequences of that. So I think that would generate a lot of interest from ethicists and people that are working um, around uh, bias and discrimination of such systems. So I'm hopeful that technical people like myself will work with people like, uh, you know, ethicists and people that are looking at um, other elements of technology to be able to come up together with some solutions that will mitigate the problems that these systems um, have at the moment and provide something that's better suited for, for a mass adoption, I would say. AI has significant potential benefits and risks for universities. In relation to ChatGPT here at Aberdeen, we're continually monitoring developments to inform our approaches going forward and reviewing any relevant policies for both staff and students. What are your thoughts around its use in the education sector, Georgios? I would say that my personal opinion is that we have to, to be open-minded with every sort of new technology that comes out. Of course, we have to be prepared to respond to such technologies and put some policies in place that will deter people from abusing the system, so using them in, in, in their own manner. Uh, I'm supportive of having such systems used in education setting. I can imagine cases where perhaps the systems can accelerate learning processes, they can be used as um, as, as, as a means of finding information quicker. I guess all of us, we grew with technology some, in some form or other. We've seen you know, how internet changed, how we do stuff. We, we saw how YouTube that was launched back in 2004, how it has changed the way we even see content and even many courses are available through YouTube and many people are educated through YouTube. So if we go back 20 years, then we might have said the same thing about YouTube. You have a, you know, a platform where it gives you content, it's unfiltered, you know, kids might be watching that. So all the discussion that we're having now, we could have had back then and even worse. So I think technology has a space uh, in every setting, education included, but we have to be mindful about the perhaps consequences of having this technology uh, available to everyone. You cannot, in my mind, you cannot just say I'm, I'm banning a technology because students might be used that to plagiarize or write essays for them. I think we have to develop and, and, and evolve and find ways of incentivizing students not to use these, these, uh, these tools or maybe incentivize them to use them, but in a specific way, uh, perhaps uh, you know, write an essay and then compare with what they would have written and write an essay about this comparison between those systems. So I think we have to be creative uh, about technology. But as a university, we are, of course, you know, we have to, to make sure that there is a policy in place to ascertain that students are, you know, abide by the rules and the policies that, that we have available and, and you know, the education that offered to them is, is, is appropriate in terms of assessing and educating and everything like that. But I think that GPT has a place in education. 
or similar systems. Are there telltale signs that a piece of copy has been system generated? Oh, um, that's a good question. So, yeah, there are some cases where you might be able to understand that the content is machine-generated content. Um, Now, again, I might be the wrong person to ask because I'm not a native speaker, so the way I use language most likely is very different to how a native speaker will use language. But sometimes the the machine-generated content is much more structured, well-formulated, almost artificially uh, looking sometimes. So when you read that, you say, hmm, that is very formal language and sometimes a bit awkwardly written. You know, I wouldn't say that you, you will find something extremely obvious that that is wrong. But if you, if, you, if you look on Twitter, there are quite a few users that will try to stress test these models. And they are trying to pose some very tricky questions, for instance, questions around mathematics or try to kind of query them and ask continuous questions and then asking another question. And then you see that the system contradicts itself uh, on a previous answer, which was correct before, and then became the wrong answer. So then you say, why, why did you give me a good answer and correct answer before? And now if I slightly change my question, you give me a wrong answer for the same thing. And then you provide different uh, sources. And there were even cases where the system apologized for making a mistake and then went back to correct itself. So suddenly you have the situation where the way that the discussion evolves, it's unnatural sometimes. So I, I, I don't think you'd be, you'll have a hard time finding this, this, uh, these cases. There are quite a few of them, actually. Is there any kind of equivalent with human writing, Sheena? You can get performance against content. And by that, I mean, you might get a writer who reads in a monotone so when they're trying to produce their own work through speech, it's very boring and just kills it stone dead. On the other hand, you will get a performance poet who gives a very vital, vigorous performance. But when you read it on the page, you think, no. But it's an evolution, isn't it? Snapchat's recently launched a new chat GPT driven app function um, and I'm sure others are, are exploring its use. What do you think the future of this technology looks like? Actually, I think quite a few um, browsers like, for instance, Google Chrome uh, or Microsoft Beans, they have started incorporating these systems onto the normal search engines. So you will see that you can enable this type of extension, which means that it's a functionality of your browser. And while you are searching for, I don't know, a recipe for having friends over lunch and you want to create something new, then you will see at the same time ChatGPT generating suggestions on how you can go about providing them a three-course lunch uh, on the weekend. So then you can see that you have ChatGPT providing output in parallel with your normal search process that you go through whenever you you look something on the internet. And if we extrapolate that, we can see many cases, like you mentioned Snapchat and others, that ChatGPT will become a feature, like a component of other systems. And ChatGPT is just an example. Google, they have their own equivalent that are developing, which is called BARD, and many other companies will, will do the same. That's why I mentioned before, I'm skeptical to focus specifically on ChatGPT in general in our discussions, because this is just an example of a system 
but there's going to be many more such systems deployed in the near future. So why do we focus on such GPT and its limitations where this is um, a very fast evolving domain when such GPT tomorrow might be obsolete? If, if we think that such GPT was released a couple of months ago and there have been so many cases and discussion about that, imagine what's going to happen in the next you know, five months or six months. So things are really progressing quite rapidly in this domain. Are these systems going to change the world? I hope so, for the, for the better, as technology has done, in my opinion. Of course, we have to be mindful that nothing is only positive, I would say, like technology has had positives and negatives. But I think I'm quite positive in general about technology. So I think it's going to change the, the world. Um, and it's going to perhaps make us rethink how we do some stuff and, and perhaps refocus on other stuff ourselves as humans. Uh, and that goes back to the question that you asked me earlier on, whether this system will replace humans in some certain cases or jobs. I, I will insist on what I answered before, that we're going to see cases where the system will support humans, but not replace humans, or, or evolve the types of jobs that we are doing, but not replace anyone. So yeah, hopefully, you know, I think systems like ChatGPT are well-placed to change and, and improve um, the world around us, with some negatives at the moment that we have to fix, of course. This has been a really interesting discussion. Thank you for your insights both, but I'm afraid our time is up. And thanks also to our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed today's look into the headlines. I'll be back to unpick more topical stories with experts from the University of Aberdeen soon. But if you just can't wait, visit abdn.ac.uk news to find all the latest stories and announcements. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.